0: politics. We have an amazing guest waiting in the wings, Suzanne Kianpour, who's coming to us live from Dubai, not too far from the protests, the mass protests that we're seeing within Iran. Really excited for you to join us today. I want to thank our sponsors, SOCAP, which is an upcoming conference about impact investing and the impact economy happening in San Francisco, October 17th. I encourage you to check it out. I will be there schmoozing with lots of other impact professionals that care about creating social impact and Empower Global, which hosts the Women's Leadership Challenge, a program for women to step into their power and create social change, and Stream Inspectors, the leaders in live stream production. You can follow along with us either on YouTube, Samantha Politics, our patreon.com Samantha Politics one and we're also now on Apple and Spotify podcasts, so those will be live tomorrow. So make sure if you haven't yet that you go on rate, review, and give us the support that we need in order to continue this show. So let's get into it. I wanna give you some background about what's happening today to give context about the mass protests that we are seeing in Iran today. So it's important that we talk first about the Iranian Revolution. So in 1979, the Iranian people rose up against an exploitative monarchy. Uh, the, the leader was called the Shah. Zach, you can put that image up. Unemployment, there were poor living conditions, pay cuts, and disillusionment with the regime were some issues that came up that caused people to rise up. There had been an increase of wealth in the country and the creation of a middle class due to riches in oil, but a lot of the oil also went into the pocket of the Shah, the Shah's people, and Western oil companies. The West and the U.S., surprise, surprise, were aligned with the shah and we wanted him to stay in power. Well, because of the issues that were happening within the country, people rose up against the shah and demanded a new style of government. It's really important to point out that there are some scholars that will say that religiosity was the driving force behind the revolution, that, you know, they wanted an Islam, all the people wanted an Islamic republic, they were angered by the lack of religion. There were some people that were like that, but ultimately that really wasn't the main reason. It was essentially disillusionment, pay cuts, all sorts of things that traditionally foment revolutions in all areas of the world. So it's the majority of Sunnis were pushed to the side by the minority, the Shiites, towards the end of the revolution. The Shiites are more extreme and this changed the political character within the country and it also led to the formation of Hezbollah and fomented a lot of Islamic extremism in the region that we see today including ISIS. You might remember that we put the Islamic Revolutionary Guard on the terrorist watch list in in 1984 and Iran and uh, U.S. relations have been very tense since the Shah uh, was deposed. Now, under the Shah, what about women? Women didn't feel as if they were able to fully participate underneath the Shah. And Ayatollah Khomeini, who was an exiled leader that kind of took the face of the Iranian revolution and other people said, hey, we want to give you equal rights. We want to make you parts of society. They coaxed women in believing that if they really participated in the revolution and they deposed the Shah and there was a new government, that Iranian women were going to have far more rights than they already did, which is why a lot of the Iranian women were leading activists within the Iranian revolution. It was really their coming to age of activism it was very cold during the revolution so there were a lot of shops and such that were closed there were curfews so women actually held a lot of activist meetings within the home now uh the supreme leader ayatollah Khomeini, zach you can put that up if you haven't put him up yet he essentially i think was playing lip service to all of the rights that he wanted women to have because he saw that they were a large mobilizing force of the Iranian revolution. And therefore he wanted to promise them the world. I don't think he actually meant it. So in 1978 from exile, he said, Islam wants to safeguard women's nobility. It wishes to make her a serious and efficient human being. So this is a 1978 from exile shortly before the revolution. He was also asked about the role of women in Islamic government. And he said, Women have taken part in the recent struggle in Iran to the same degree as the men, he said on January 23rd, 1979. This is a week before he returns to Tehran. We will give women every kind of freedom. So he's painting this picture for women that they're going to be a central part of society, that they're going to have all of these rights. Now, once he came into power, and he received a lifetime term after appointed uh, being appointed by a panel of 88 clerics and became the supreme leader of Iran, which is a name that cracks me up. He then became a hardliner on religious issues, including women's rights, enforcing the hijab in 1981. And he made sure that Allah khamenei became his successor. Now, Zach, if you could put up that picture of the um, of uh, the Iranian women in the magazine. So you could see in this image of this, you know, magazine from the 1970s that Iranian women didn't wear hijabs. They had their hair down. They wore clothes that were whatever you want to call them. I, you know, some might say suggestive. I would say normal. They wore normal clothes. They were not done in hijabs. It, you know, they were very much open and, you know, hair down. This might remind you of another society which has kind of gone backwards in times with women's rights Afghanistan and the images we're seeing now of Afghan women kind of going backwards with the same type of repressive um, theocratic government that's now taking place in Afghanistan under the Taliban well Allah Khamenei took over in 1989 and Zach you can put up that image of Allah Khomeini when the, when uh, Ayatollah Khomeini died, and I know it's a little confusing. They sound very similar. They are two different men, but equally repressive. Allah Khomeini, so if you think about uh, what the Ayatollah Khomeini said in 1979, and now Allah Khomeini says in 2014, he says, one of the greatest mistakes of Western thoughts about the issues of women is this sexual equality. Justice is a legitimate concept, but equality is sometimes legitimate and sometimes illegitimate. Why should we separate people who have been built for a particular domains? So he's talking about women here in terms of one's natural makeup, whether physical or emotional from that particular domain and drag her towards another domain, which all of the exalted has built for another makeup. Why should we do this? What reason do we have for doing this? What kind of sympathy is this? Why should women be entrusted with carrying out male tasks? What kind of honor is to have women carry out male tasks? I am sorry that women and ladies themselves show sensitivity over this issue." So we can see how dramatically we came from 1979 and the promises of women having equal freedoms to all of a sudden saying that women should not be doing male tasks. And then it almost feels patronizing of like, oh well, you know, this this isn't their natural role in society. They should be in the home. So you can see how the deterioration of women's rights has happened. So I think that's really important to put into context what is now happening today. Zach, you can play that slideshow, which you've probably have heard the death of Masa Amini, who has now become the face of the protests in Iran. She was a 22-year-old girl who was uh, Kurdish, was in Tehran. She was actually wearing her hijab, but she was wearing it improperly. It wasn't covering enough of her hair or whatever garbage they made up about it. And the morality police, which had been around to enforce this Islamic theocracy that's been in place since 1979, took her into custody. And it, it's unclear what exactly happened. They of course say that she had a heart attack, but it's pretty clear that she was beaten. Her family says she may have been banged against a police vehicle. And she ended up dying in the hospital four days after she was taken into custody by the morality police. This has sparked absolute outrage within the country, with women, and I think it's important here too. It's not just women that women and men alongside them and millennials have taken to the streets, burning their jobs, cutting their hair publicly, chanting "Women, life, freedom, death to the dictator, death to Khamenei." The protests are now all over the country, spanning 31 provinces of Iran and over 80 cities and towns. The Iranian government is not too happy about this. So they've been limiting access to the media through disabling the internet, even just as we were preparing for the show, which is why we were a little late coming on. One of the videos that we wanted to play all of a sudden wasn't accessible on YouTube and then it was accessible again. So they're really trying their best to block information of this from getting out to media se- sources, especially Western media, but they've really been able to un- unable-, unable to do this. When asked, Khamenei blamed the incitement of the protests, and we're going to ask our guests about this, on the U.S. and Israel, saying that these incidents were designed by America, the fake Zionist regime, those who were on the payroll, and traitorous Iranians abroad who helped them. The main problem, their main problem is with a strong and independent Iran and the progress of the country. So he's claiming that this is all kind of a hoax by the US and Israel and the Zionists, because they're they they don't want Iran to be an independent country, they want to have control over Iran, which is a bunch of BS. He did He finally came out and said Amini's death broke our hearts. Uh, But he's not really taking this seriously. They said they were going to investigate but sounds like again, BS. Biden and the US administration has sided with protesters in his speech to the United Nations, and we have imposed sanctions on the country's morality police. We've also been working with Elon Musk to get these Starlink satellites over there, just as we did in Ukraine, to be able uh, for Iranians to have access to the internet. What's happened with regards to these protests? So let's play some of the protests first. So Zach, you can stop that slideshow. So these are schoolgirls protesting. powerful watching these girls with backpacks who look like they're about 13 protesting and chanting women life freedom uh we've got let's see women taking (laughs)
1: and
0: Let's look at who these morality police are. <laughs> powerful stuff you can see women being beaten pushed into vans you know these men don't care at all they are there to exert their power over women and make themselves feel like they're in power and to you know put put into place religion which i think in this case is just a a means for controlling women we'll talk more about that in a minute but the death toll stands at 133 people according to iran human rights groups as of yesterday Because the regime has now reacted against the protesters and is indiscriminately shooting into crowds of protesters and taking people into custody. We're going to be watching a few more videos, but I want to bring in our guest, especially because she was nice enough to come to us from Dubai, where it is midnight. Suzanne Kianpour is the presenter of BBC's Out of the Shadows. She can be found reporting and anchoring on BBC World News, BBC World Service, and writing for BBC Online, and of course now as a guest on Samantha Politics. She's the creator and host of the Women Building Peace on the BBC World Service in collaboration with the Georgetown Institute of Women, Peace, and Security, and she is hosting a documentary about Iran and Israel, which she's just finished filming, which we'll get to hear about. She's also served as the Capitol Hill correspondent for The Context with Christian Frazier on BBC and spent a decade as a foreign affairs and political journalist beginning her career at NBC News, spanning nearly 16 countries. Suzanne's also the author of Iranian digital influence efforts, guerrilla broadcasting for the 21st century, published by the Atlantic Council. She is an Emmy-nominated journalist and listed as one of Washington, D.C.'s most influential leaders under 40 for several years in a row. She was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, with a Persian and Sicilian background and is fluent in written and verbal Farsi. Suzanne, welcome to the show. Thank you
2: for having me. It's a really important time to talk about this very important topic, particularly as I've been getting lots of messages um, from Iranians either inside the country or outside saying... Either please be our voice or
0: why isn't Western media covering this story? So, so Suzanne, I'm, I'm going to, there you are. We, we had a black screen for one second. So what are you hearing? Can you tell us some of the sources and messages that you're getting? Well, the number one
2: takeaway, I think, is that this genie is not going back in the bottle. And, and, and what's interesting is that um, President Raisi, Iran's President Raisi today, um, said he admitted that they have weaknesses and shortcomings. And then Chervin, uh, the uh, YouTube video that you alluded to that when we were trying to load it, it uh, wasn't coming on online and then suddenly it was. He was this uh, singer who wrote a very powerful, beautiful song that really resonated all over the world. Um, and... Was basically explaining the reason for why uh, these protests were happening, and um, he was jailed for that. It, it's important to remember that music is one of those iffy subjects in the Islamic Republic. Um, just like dancing, just like mingling with the opposite sex, just like having your hair not covered, and so his so like, song—fun I mean,
0: I mean, that brings you joy.
2: Basically. Yeah. uh, Basically, (laughs) basically, uh, you know, the idea is you're supposed to be living as a pious person in this, uh, religious state and your entertainment is supposed to be religion. Uh, and so anyway, long story short, he was arrested and there was a global outcry for his arrest. Uh, and, but he's been released, Mm -hmm. but what's, What's strange, uh, actually, and this this I was just getting um, intel about this before I came on. What's strange is that he's written something on Instagram in Farsi, and I'm going to read it. I'm, I translated it, and I'm going to read it for you. He says, hi, friends. I really don't know what to say. I'm infinitely grateful for all of the kindness you've had towards me at this time. I came here to say that I'm doing well, but I'm sorry that certain special events... Mm -hmm. um that could mean interest outside of iran with which i had no connection have made improper improper political use of the piece i published i wish for all of you to know that i belong to this homeland i was born here and i have always been one of you and i became who i am today in this nation with you and your support and i love it for that now this part is key I am not ready slash willing to change or replace it with anything else. And I will remain stay for my homeland, my flag and my people. I will keep singing and I don't like to become a toy or tool in the hands of those who do not think of love for me, you and this nation. Greetings to you all. I love you. Now this is coming on the heels of yesterday. Uh, the Supreme leader in a surprise, Appear A uh, you know speech, war, a pr- surprise response to the protest. Basically, we were expecting to hear from him tomorrow because tomorrow is an Islamic holiday, and but he surprised us and he spoke yesterday. And as expected, he blamed the protests and the unrest on Iran and Israel, which you know sabotage is part of this so-called shadow war, which is the subject mm-hmm. of my documentary. And um, so this statement very much. Sounds in line with what the Iranian government is claiming is the source behind these protests. Um, so I mm. think this is something that we need to pay attention to. I mean, it's not it's not uncommon for people who are seen as potentially politically opposed to the Iranian government um, to later. Um, be kind of told what to say
0: mm. we'll stay tuned on that super interesting let's why don't we, we want to take a minute and watch that video watch this have our audience watch the songs so they can know what we're talking about برای توی کوچ
3: رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرامون برای تغییر مغز که پوسیدن برای شمنندگی برای ویپولی برای حسرت یک زندگی معمولی برای کودک زبال و آرزوهاش برای این اقتصاد دستوری برای این هوای آلوده برای ویت شده رخت فرسوده برای پیروز و اعتمال ان <سؤال> برای سگ <سؤال> های بیگناه ممنوع برای گریه های برای تصویر تکرار این لحظه برای چهره ای که میخنده برای دانش آموزا برای هاینده برای این بهشت اجباری all right so
0: for most of our most of our english-speaking audience can you take us through some of the pieces of that video that you think are the most important
2: i mean it's just it's so powerful, and the English translation really doesn't even truly give justice the emotion, and that's why this statement that he's made is, you know, I mean, it's diametrically different to the mm-hmm. the emotion that he expressed in this song, um, and so you know, on the one hand, um, one could understand how that might happen. Uh, and so he, so he basically, it's called paroye and it means because of, and it's just a laundry list of all of the reasons one assumes people are protesting. Mm -hmm. He even, he, he talks about illegal dogs. He, He talks about the lack of freedom to, you know, embrace or kiss your lover in public. He talks about the women who wish they were men of note women can't there's there was there's been lots of fights over women being able to attend soccer games for example Mm. um you know music um the shame of not having money because obviously there's been economic crisis for quite some time there uh and so yeah it's just it's a laundry list of all of the reasons why they're in despair frankly and the this revolution one is led by women but it's what's been most striking to me and and it is a revolution it obviously a revolution has so many different um it, it's kind of one of those things where the Iranian government will not want to call it a revolution but you know we saw a green revolution in 2009 it didn't end up in regime change revolutions don't necessarily end up in repeat regime changes Um, And so but this is a form of a revolution, it's a rebellion against the what this younger generation in particular sees as just a stifling of their civil liberties that they believe that they have rights to they want to be free, they've grown up in an age where actually they've all had Instagram. So they've all had a, a window to the outside world. Whereas the millennial generation, generation, not so much. I mean, Facebook, Facebook, for example, came about it to the point where it was more mainstream, maybe like what, 2005, 2006. I mean, that's actually when Facebook kind of started coming about, right? And so by the time the Green Revolution came around 2009, that was when Twitter came on the scene and Twitter was the first time Uh, where we saw social media really used as a kind of organizing platform for political purposes. And so now the Gen Z generation has had Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. Oh my gosh, there's what is it? Be Real, new new social media um, platform. I mean, so whereas the Iranian government has um, up until now been able to kind of keep uh, this... Islamic code of life and rule the country under that umbrella it is clear that that is not really going to fly mm. it's just it's just not i mean women are walking outside blatantly breaking the law not wearing their hijab some are not even not not, not only not wearing hijab but they're also not i mean their arms
0: are showing their legs are showing so they're just like yeah, what, what, what is it, what it like for you, I mean, like, seeing those images? Like, what do you think that the feeling is of people seeing women in the streets with bare legs and no hijabs? I mean, it must be... It's It, it honestly is hard
2: to truly explain to you how brave that actually is. I mean, mm-hmm. you're quite literally risking your life because you're breaking the law. And so break the law there... Honestly, it's different than breaking the law in the West. I mean, the punishment for breaking the law in certain laws is quite severe. I mean, for example, uh, somebody and I've just been getting so many messages and voice notes. um, Somebody sent me a voice note and told me a story about how she got fined and then her car got impounded. And she was told that if she did this again, she would be sent to prison. And her crime was she was driving. And her, her uh, scarf, like, fell off her head while she's driving behind the wheel by herself. And I'm a right camera there. picked it up. I mean, so this idea where Khamenei says, oh, it's not about hijab. No, it actually is about hijab. Now, what's interesting is that, I mean, obviously, it's about a lot more than hijab. For It depends on who you are. It might not. It might not be just about hijab. If you're a protester, it might not be just about hijab. Um, but what's interesting is for my documentary, I interviewed a former Iranian revolutionary guard corps commander. So, you know, quite conservative. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I asked him about Maksa Amini. When I did this interview, it was a couple of days after her, um, after it had come out that she had died in custody. Mm -hmm. And he said, it was interesting. And it's interesting that you mentioned the kind of, the, the, which sect of Islam is more extreme than the other. The Shia do not think that they're extreme. They, In fact, this, this commander told me that Islam is a soft version of Islam, and therefore, because of that, uh, he doesn't believe that they should, um, you know, they should be enforcing hijab this way. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, was surprising. I hadn't heard that before, this idea that, could we see the, the mandatory hijab become not mandatory, become mm-hmm. voluntary? Um, I don't know. I mean, it remains to be seen. Obviously, Raisi admitted that um, they have shortcomings. And other sources of mine that I've spoken to, some quite close to the government and the kind of inner, inner circle, of the supreme leader, have said that they're concerned about the breakdown of civil society. Um, however, there is a religious sect of the country and also it's, it's a, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. The Islamic Republic of Iran is stuck between a rock and a hard place, the government, because Mm. if they give way on this piece of fabric, it's quite literally, potentially the beginning of the unraveling of the fabric of the regime Mm. itself. That's so. The Islamic Republic of Iran itself, and okay. so, but this has been brewing. This is not something that that just happened overnight, and that's why this idea. I mean, first of all, Lemonade is giving at least the U.S. definitely like too much credit. I mean, frankly, there are people that I've spoken to who would probably wish that you know they could have been you know, that they could take credit. Okay. Cause it's no secret that there are particularly on the Republican front that, um, that they wish that this regime would change. Right. And so these, these protests are not organized. They're, they're not, I mean, there's, there's no leader for them really. And we already actually started to see kind of a split between, um, you know, po- political ideologies outside of the country kind of, wanting to step in and be like, all right, this is the moment, this is the regime change moment, whether that was the Mujahidin Khalq, which is like um, a bit more aggressive and has a pretty bloody checkered history, or the Pahlavi monarchists who think that the answer is the return of the Shah's son, who actually lives not far from you in Washington, D.C. Um, or, you know, obviously Masih Ali Najad has been, uh, at the forefront of these protests, these anti- compulsory hijab protests, she has been at the forefront. And that's really, I mean, I think the most clear organized protesting has been with the women. And yes. when he says when he says, you know, uh, people in the West, I mean, he's not wrong about West women, Iranian women in the West who have been fighting for women's rights. But it's also, um, you know, it's also important to remember that those women aren't inside Iran risking right, their lives. Really, yeah. Although yeah. I, I do have to know, Masih Ali Najad was uh, the victim of an alleged kidnapping plot, which was linked to the Iranian government in New York in last year, 2021. She was linked to, wait, say it one more time. She, she was-, was allegedly, uh, allegedly the FBI foiled a plot to kidnap her, which was linked to the Iranian government on U.S. soil.
0: And can you explain who Masa Al-Najjad is? Masa al is
2: an uh, Iranian woman living in exile in um, New York and she has been kind of behind this White Wednesdays campaign, which is effectively she, and this is a lot of the reason why we have a lot of this content and these women kind of filming themselves, taking their hijab off is because she sort of made this drive to get these videos out. And this has been going on for years. I mean, it's been going on for the last four, almost five years. And so, yeah, this isn't isn't a spontaneous, out of nowhere. Right protest revolution movement, it's not, but it's clear that Gen Z in particular has taken it. And is just like, oh, we're just done with living
0: like this. I mean, being yeah. here in Dubai and covering- Can I, can and- I, just you for, like- can I stop you for one mm-hmm. second, Susan? I think it's just a, a good point. I have a clip of Masa. So I think just because we mm-hmm. talked about her, let's just show a clip so people know who we're talking about. Mm-hmm
2: think about women are being in prison just because they want to have make decision about their own body my body is my choice and this is not a small issue when iranian women are fighting for their dignity then take a stand and make the islamic republic responsible sanction all the oppressors and make them accountable and ask them to release all the women who protest against compulsory jobs job and ask them to release all the political prisoners that's my demand and the demand of many iranian women inside iran thank you so much
0: so she's become essentially a spokesperson for iranian speeches i believe at the united nations
2: yeah and uh and she you know she's worked I mean, she's kept this up for, she's kept this up for quite some time. Uh, but it's, you know, living here and working on this documentary on the Iran-Israel shadow war has felt like living in a tinderbox. And quite mm-hmm. frankly, it I, I was waiting for the kind of match. Hmm. Uh, I, I really thought, I thought it would be, you know, something related to the kind of tit for tat that we've been seeing between Iran and Israel in the shadow war, which has included, you know, cyber attacks and assassinations and sabotage. But I truly wasn't expecting that match to be this. Mm. When you Although say you shouldn't be-, be surprised, right? I host a series called women building peace and we've seen women at the forefront of change and, and social movements. And this year, I mean, there's countless examples of it, quite frankly. And so, I shouldn't be surprised. When uh, particularly, uh, particularly, when it comes to Persian women, I mean, this is the thing. People are like, we were like, oh, you know, when it first it started, I, there's so many people said, oh, you know, it's just gonna die down. I'm like, Mm-mm. you know how they say, "Hell hath no no fury like a woman scorned."
0: We're yeah. just like multiply that when it comes to Persian. Women. Yeah, Iranian women are not a joke. So, uh, well, can you walk us back through when you said, you know, this didn't come from nowhere? Like, you know, maybe the history of the women's rights movement or, you know, we talked about moss a little bit, but where this comes from, from the women's perspective, besides well, what I talked about. So
2: this piece of fabric is so symbolic, right? This piece of fabric on our heads is so symbolic. It, it's it been a kind of push-pull lever almost for the entirety of entirety of the existence of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Mm. And women have pushed the boundaries of this mandatory Islamic dress for quite some time. And what will end up happening is the government will kind of, it's not like they'll formulate, formally loosen up restrictions, but the morality police will kind of turn the other cheek and then suddenly they'll kind of ratchet up the pressure so to speak and start rounding people up. Now, essentially what happened massas arrest? I mean, I've literally I've, I've seen this happen with my own eyes. I've seen morality police pick up women on the street with my own eyes. This happens. And I must add that I mean, this is not something that is unique to Iran. I mean, it it used to happen in Saudi Arabia in the sense that there was morality police in Saudi Arabia who would come and make you fix your hijab. Now that's changed. Um, you know, at least for Western women, you don't have to cover your hair if you don't want to. Um, but that's obviously a recent change. Um, and so, so you know, this is this is something that's kind of been par for the course. What really happened? I mean, this is just this is one of those those routine things that is part of everyday life in the Islamic mm. Republic of Iran that went horribly wrong and ended up being the match that lit this movement that looks like it's heading to perhaps a real change but if anybody is saying they know what's going to happen they're they don't
0: yeah I mean because that's what you know And this we were chatting before it's like like your statement about that this piece of fabric if they allow this to not be compulsory that that could lead to the unraveling of the fabric of the regime like what would that even look like like the unraveling of the regime is it is it like the Iranian revolution in 79 where all of a sudden Khomeini goes into exile and the government just goes poof and uh, you know all of a sudden it's completely replaced i mean like what like what could happen i guess well,
2: there's several scenarios, um, and of course, it. as a journalist, I'm an objective observer of this. Um, right now, the Supreme Leader, I mean, there's rumors that he, his health is not great. I mean, right. he's quite old. Um, and so we have been hearing talk about possible succession plans. Obviously, he wants to pass on the baton to his son. There are members you know, members in the the kind of circle of experts who don't want that. Um, And then there's the IRGC angle. Um, There's been speculation about what could happen if things like really get bad. Would the IRGC take over? I mean, the reform group has since the Green Revolution has largely been sidelined right Mm -hmm. um zarif and Rouhani were reformists but you know they're since they've been out of office they've been on the outs i mean we haven't where is Zarif, right like the former foreign minister who was the kind of champion of the nuclear the iran nuclear deal um and uh so i mean yeah I, i i who knows? <laughs> I guess we'll just have to wait and see. But obviously there's, and here's here's the thing. Um, this is w- the Iranian diaspora who talks about regime change
1: mm-hmm.
2: and obviously there are people inside who clearly want regime change because they're running around with placards saying down with the dictator, right? They're the ones actually living this. They're the ones who can't leave. They're the ones who have to live, um, who have to live with these rules. So there's been a lot of criticism with the U.S. government about uh, why did they take so long? Kind of, especially the Biden personally sending his support, and it's precisely because, historically speaking, the president of the United States lives in the shadow of this failed coup in 1953 Mm -hmm. where the CIA was involved in overthrowing the prime minister in Iran. And so, and as we saw, the supreme leader used that and has tried to blame the protests on outsiders fueling the flames of regime change. And so you know it's very clear that reforms need to happen because it uh, i mean look at just how many people are so unhappy that they're quite literally risking their lives on the streets
0: but what in terms of like, in- like what
2: the political what the political changes would look like and would we see you know a revolution kind of like 1979 but the other direction i mean maybe but maybe not i mean that requires a leader and right mm-hmm. now, it doesn't appear that there is a absolutely clear leader. But of mm. course, we're 18 days in. Who knows? Right. A lot of experts I've spoken to have like thought two weeks ago that there would be a crackdown and it would all die down and everything would, everyone would just go back to their homes and you know we'd be back to normal as other protests have been squashed, well, but and it,
0: and it's, it's going on longer than, than was expected. Right, it's amazing seeing how many populations of people. Um, I'm just going to show one more clip. This is of medical students protesting, which I find so interesting.
3: Be shut up, be shut up, be shut up, be shut up, be shut up.
0: Susan, what are they chanting there? What's the, what are they listen, saying? Saying shut up, which is like a, it's, it's a pretty bad insult. It's
2: basically like you have no honor. Interesting. Um, yeah. And so, but, but I mean, listen, the, the, I mean, quite frankly, isn't it a bit insulting to kind of make assumptions that all of these people are just being driven by foreign forces and like, that's why they're risking their lives and going into, street because foreigners are telling them to. It's like, oh, a foreigner told me to go run into the street and like stand
0: in front of a cop with my hair uncovered. Do you think anyone actually believes that? I mean, it's obviously so ludicrous that how could anyone believe that's like, you know, these are all Zionists. Yeah, people do believe it. No, people believe it. Who believes that? I mean,
2: like, who actually You have to, it's quite a, the culture can be The culture can be, um, and it's not just Iran. The Middle East itself is prone to conspiracy theories. I was based in Lebanon in 2014 when ISIS was wreaking havoc in the region and beheading American journalists, etc. And I wrote a story about um, how this conspiracy theory was going around the region that America created ISIS and Hillary Clinton admitted it in her book. And when I tell you the story was everywhere, it was like from the taxi driver in Beirut to an intelligence official that I was speaking to at lunch. <laughs> so these are two very different walks of life, and they both mentioned the story to me and believed it. So yes, I mean, and the thing is, the 1953 botched, the, the 1953 coup. Okay, is even though it was it was almost 70 years ago now. It is still something that the government uses, but to say that there isn't suspicion mm-hmm. because for of Americans. What you're saying is because
0: they're suspicious of
2: Americans. Yeah, there 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 is there is suspicion of Americans. There is suspicion of the British, especially. And frankly, there's more suspicion of the British than the Americans. So
0: that's any consolation. It's just it's wild thinking that people could actually legitimately believe that. Um, Why do you think, so there's been a lot of criticism of Western media not covering this enough. Why do you think the West should care what's happening in Iran right now? I mean,
2: so my documentary is uh, answers this question. So everyone should tune in. And it's about peace in the Middle East, October 22nd on BBC world service. Uh, It's called out of the shadows. And it's, it's about peace in the Middle East. And that has, in an age of globalization, that has, you know, repercussions for the rest of the world. I mean, we need to remember Iran is allies, close allies with Russia. Iran is currently, or at least they they were up until a couple of weeks ago, uh, supplying Russia with drones to use in Ukraine. Mm. I, mean, I mean, Iran is Iran isn't. Iran has made America and Israel its sworn enemy and that's because Iran is a revolutionary state and a revolutionary state needs an enemy. I mean, over the summer, we were seeing reports of of the IRGC allegedly behind, again, an assassination attempt, this time an assassination rather than a kidnapping attempt, of um, the former National Security Advisor John Bolton, allegedly threats towards other U.S. officials and that is because it was revenge for the killing of Hassan Soleimani who was Iran's top military commander who Trump ordered the killing of uh, in Iraq in early January 2020. So I mean
0: but the Iranian government I mean from what I understand like is anti-American but that'll most it made not most Iranians, but there's a lot of Iranians who are very pro Western, pro American, yeah. and have yeah, you know, that diaspora. But that, I mean, that's
2: why they want to live like, you know, that's why they want to live free the way Westerners do. And, you know, so there were in the, uh, I believe this was last week in particular, there were people sharing the Instagram pages of the children of certain mullahs who are in the Iranian government, who are living, daughters, who are living in the West, living, okay. you know, living in the West, not wearing Islamic dress in the West. And these are the daughters of mullahs. And so... And so what,
0: is, what is a mullah?
2: Um, a mullah is a religious cl- cleric. And so they're the ones who run the country. Got it. Um, and so they're, they're calling out, a form of hypocrisy right it's you know like, so if so why are you sending your children outside of iran and okay if if for some reason you feel like they should be outside of iran then what does this islamic dress only count inside iran and doesn't count outside of iran
0: right i i thought it was kind of that was unbelievable when um Khomeini told Christiana Amanpour that she had to wear a headscarf. Raisi, the president, so, Raisi. It was, sorry, it was Raisi. And she yeah, and her. so that's
2: the thing. So, so a few days before that, Leslie Stahl, the correspondent for 60 minutes, was inside Iran, and she did an interview with Raisi for CBS, and she wore a headscarf, and protests were already going on at that time. So,
0: I mean...
2: People were up in arms about this. She got a lot of criticism on Twitter, but she was inside Iran, and that was—that's the law of the land. And quite frankly, you know, as a journalist, when you are going somewhere and you're covering that country, you have to abide by the laws of the land.
1: That's mm-hmm.
2: what it is, right? Um, but when you come, when you're in the U.S., the U.S.'s law of the land is not to cover your hair just because you're sitting in front of the president of Iran. And actually, every time I have met with an Iranian official outside of Iran, I have not covered my hair. And also, they haven't asked me to.
0: Mm. So do you think he was doing that to make a point? Definitely, yeah. To say, like, this now is, what, is what, I said,
2: was- that's what I think, but I don't know for sure. But that, cause it, I mean, imagine if, I mean, Christiana Manpour is a Hafiranian woman. Imagine if he'd succeeded, that's going back home. And that's the major win. So, right. You know, she, that's a, that's a difficult call to make that she made. Yeah. I was going to say as a journalist, what would you Mm. do? I would have done the same thing. Mm. I would have done the same thing. Because also, you know, if the alternative would have been to, say, okay, yeah, sure, I'll I'll do the interview, I'll cover my hair and then turn take it off mid interview. But one, that's kind of activism and our job is not to be activists, our job is to be a objective journalist, because if you cross into the line of activism, then you know, the the other side sees you as an activist and not as a journalist and doesn't see you as objective. And then you don't have you're not able to tell the story from all sides. And so that doesn't really Mm. that doesn't really do the audience justice frankly i didn't of course, even think of that you Come that fire for this a lot because people expect you to take a side i mean listen yeah. human rights, like the unjust death of a or murder rather of a girl who i mean that nobody is saying like nobody is, is that's not something you can be objective ob- objective about like that is that is a right. police, police arrest that went horribly wrong because brutality was used. That is wrong. But that is a violation of human rights. And so there's nobody who's going to say, who's going to be like, I'm objective about this. Right. And so, but you know, if you agreed to putting the headscarf on and then continue the interview and then take it off, then. Then that becomes activism. I didn't even think yeah. about that option. That's interesting. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, this is the kind of stuff that you have to think about as a journalist. And so. Yeah she made a she made a seriously difficult call and the right call um, for all of the reasons that I listed already. and but you know, she would it, it would have been the first interview post Massa Amini's death
0: from an Iranian official. Hmm. what what do you what do you feel like people in the West can do to support these women in Iran? now? I mean, usually it's I like mean, donations, like wh- what can people do to show their support? Listen, sunshine is the greatest disinfectant,
2: right? And so this, the reason why journalism exists and media exists is because it is, it is part of the checks and balances against a government and certain governments who want absolute power, obviously, want to suppress information and so it's one of those things where i mean of note the reason why the world is talking about masa amini is because two young female journalists broke the story went and went and chased the story one of them went into a picture of her in the coma and obviously then you could kind of like analyze what was going on the side of her head um and then the other one went to her funeral, and both of them, mm-hmm. as far as I know up until now, are still d- detained. Like they, they were in jail; they were jailed.
0: What happens to people when they're detained in Iran? Um, well,
2: it, it it it's not good. Depends on person. It depends on. It's, that's not good.
0: And is the, is the goal to, like, you know, going back full circle to the beginning of the episode about the singer, about Shervin, is the goal when they're in detainment, detention, excuse me, to, to intimidate them into not proceeding with activism in the future or to take back what they say or, you know, if they are released?
2: Well, I mean, right now, they're clearly worried about a revolt against the the government and regime change. So, you know, we're we're seeing from Cherveen's statement, um clearly he I mean not clearly, but it looks like he's been encouraged to say things that uh, debatable whether or not he actually believes what he's saying. I don't know. Um Mm -hmm. but Yeah, I mean, the idea is like, they don't want these, these, these protests have wreaked havoc, and people, a lot people have died, and it makes the country look terrible, and it destabilizes the nation. So of course, they don't want these protests to continue. So of course, you know, the M.O. in the past has been to use force and to kind of crack down. But I think because the world is watching, and they know that, you know, maybe Shervin was lucky and we don't know what happened while he was detained. We don't know, but he's out. Um, and that's a lot more than we can say about these. some of these dual nationals, for example, who have been in prison for years and years over just completely made up charges of alleged espionage. I mean, that's the thing. They, they, the interpretation of the law can be so, I mean, there's sometimes there's just no rhyme or reason. Mm-hmm.
0: So I w- wonder, and I know we're, we're getting low on time, it, in uh, this book by Maria Stefan and Erica Chenoweth about nonviolent resistance movements, they say that one of the breaking points of revolutions, of becoming successful, is when the military defects. Um, and join the protesters, and I know that happened partially in 79. Do you think there's any likelihood that the military will decide to side with the the people?
2: The military apparatus of Iran is actually quite complicated. They effectively have like two armies. Um, You know, the more likely scenario is, and again, this kind of Depends on what happens with Khamenei and his, um, you know, kind of health. But, um, you know, we could potentially see IRGC taking over, which could look like, you know, a sort of mediating, peacemaking type deal. But I wouldn't really call it the IRGC kind of defecting and. Siding with the protesters because they're already quite powerful Um, It's different than a kind of military coup in the sense that one would think about it I mean, this is Iran is a very complex complicated nation that um, I mean, like I said anybody who says that they know what's gonna happen has no idea what they're talking about you just don't and also uh, American intelligence. Speaking of speaking of this idea that oh, this is all orchestrated by American intelligence. American intelligence got 1970 wrong.
0: 1979 super wrong. Really? Do you yeah. think that wasn't going to happen?
2: Yeah, it was. There was this cable that was sent that was sent just on the eve of everything just falling apart, and it was mm-hmm. we. It's time for us to think about the unthinkable, and it's like. Oh, well, you're late. <laughs> it's only been brewing for an entire year, but it's also you know the Shah was the american was America's man, so they didn't they didn't really want to believe it. Um, in this case, I feel like there's a risk of believing that this is the end of the regime when it might not be, but it also might be. I mean again, we don't we have no idea. we're at day eighteen,
0: right. Are there any other, before I let you go, any other, you know, stories you want to share from your sources on the ground that you think are important that people should know about?
2: I mean, the thing is, you know, again, it's, this is very much about women's rights. This is, and the women went out there and they're like, we're just sick of this. And the men backed them up. And now we're seeing schoolgirls doing this, yeah, and then we're seeing school boys backing them up. So it's what we're seeing is unprecedented, and on what's unprecedented can be revolutionary. Now the definition of revolution varies. You know, not all revolutions are created equal.
0: Yeah. So but the, the nature you're saying of having you know men really backing women up for an issue that's very much about women's rights and women's rights to, you know, it's,
2: it's so coming. We don't know what that change actually is,
0: but it's coming. And in fact,
2: actually it's already arrived. Mm.
0: And it's interesting thinking about obviously like, you know, when I listen to Masa talk and say, you know, my body, my choice, obviously, you know, the rollback on reproductive rights in America and how important it is that not just women are the ones standing up and saying, you know, give us back our bodies, but that men are also standing behind us and saying, you know, her body, her choice, our, you know, our family, our choice. And that that's really, really critical as having both genders to be a part of this because of I mean, I have to say
2: there are so many similarities between America and Iran. Honestly, it's, and, and I get in, the, I get into this a bit in the, in the documentary, um, you know, Iran is at the end of the day a, a religious country um America is at the end of the day a religious country mm. and we're seeing these parallels when it comes to you know when a government is kind of in trouble in a way, what do they turn to? They turn to women and controlling women but what with difference is we're seeing in Iran we're seeing the men back up the women, but i don't I don't really see that in the US. I don't really see that in the US when it comes to Roe v. Wade at least. Obviously there's male politicians, but those are politicians. That's a platform, it's midterms. Do you know, like we're we're physically seeing men walking by women in Iran in a dress and no hijab, protecting her.
0: Wow. there was this video
2: there was yeah. this video early days of um, early days when these protests kicked off where this woman was walking down the street wearing a sundress and didn't have her hair cover and there was a guy filming her and he was like praising her. I mean it was one of those things you know when you hear a guy talking to you on the street you just assume they're harassing you which yeah. is horrible <laughs> right It's horrible that that's like that we expect that and that's normalized but that's not what was happening in this particular scene. He was literally like praising
0: her, praising her bravery and he was protecting her. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, uh, any last, you know, messages before I let you go to bed? (laughs) It's bedtime. Um,
2: You know, I think, I think that this, this um, story needs to continue to be paid attention to. Um, You know, it's, change is always inevitable and reform i mean here's the thing the conversations i've been having with these you know conservative men who are close to the government who are former officials for example even they are recognizing that there needs to be a kind of reckoning and that's pretty telling and so You know, they can say, you know, Khamenei can say, oh, the U.S. media is stoking this. We're not. (laughs) Like, whatever. We're just not. We're covering a story and we're going to continue covering it because it's important. And it's a part of history. Just like when the Iranian revolution was happening, the Islamic revolution was happening. The media covered it because it was important and it was a part of history. Right. Regardless of what the reporters individually felt about it isn't what mattered. It was, we have a story to cover. It's change. It's transformative, pivotal, etc.
0: Right. Well, Suzanne, I wanna thank you so much for taking the time out. I know you're slammed right now uh, mm-hmm. and I wanna encourage people that are watching to watch her documentary when it comes out on October 25th on BBC called Out of the Shadows about Iran, Israel and Middle East peace or the quest for that. Uh, I'm Mm -hmm. sure it's going to be terrific. I cannot wait to watch it. So I really want to thank you for bringing light to these issues, for giving us inside information and for paying attention to this issue and and being willing to come on the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for giving this story uh, attention. You know, like I said, I thought I've been getting messages from people feeling like it hasn't been getting enough attention in the U.S. media in particular which is why it's ironic that Khamenei blamed the U.S. media like well Well, there was a hurricane and there's Russia and there's a lot going on I I guess.
0: No no I mean I really I I genuinely think it's because of I think that you know the media is also masculinized in the sense of when we think about global politics and foreign policy it's always like this grand strategy things like how many you know times can we cover the Iran nuclear deal? Like, yes, it's a big deal, but it's also like nuclear weapons, like guns and bombs and missiles and and nukes and all the kind of manly stuff that we want to know what's happening with the nukes. And you know, that's women, interesting. Like, I've
2: never thought of it that way. That's I really interesting. Think
0: that women showing their legs in the street and waving hijabs in the air, burning hijabs. I don't think is is as interesting from like a a global geostrategy type perspective, because it, it it's like, ah, it's, it's just women, right? And I think that there people don't understand that women can be the 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 fronts of huge watershed moments in world history. Because they're usually well, those women, women, usually not told like that. It's
2: yeah, not. well that's true, but that's because that's also because who is who is telling the stories, right? And the you, the reason why I launched my Women Building Peace series for the BBC is I, I saw this statistic that just shook me, frankly, at how little we've really come. To this day, still, less than 25% of news stories women are the subject of. Mm. But, you know, hey, I covered these nuclear negotiations. I traveled with Secretary Kerry When they were, you know, in twenty thirteen when we actually in twenty thirteen when we reached the US and the P five plus one reached the uh, first interim agreement. So like the framework that then ended up becoming the JCPOA. Mm -hmm. That was on my birthday in twenty thirteen and I missed my birthday party in Washington. You know I like these themed birthday parties, right? Oh yeah, right. And so I missed my own birthday party, as in people showed up and I wasn't there. They didn't get the memo that I had to postpone it because John Kerry was my ride home because they came, you know, at least he came home. At least I got a nuclear deal, AKA a good story for me to cover for my my birthday. Um, And so, you know, okay, so then now what? We're back at at square one, really. So, I mean, it's interesting to put it that way where it's like, okay, So there's the men, the men negotiating the nuclear deal. It used to be, actually, I wrote a piece about the women of the Iran deal. It was really Mm. interesting. Um, But, you know, now it really is mostly men. Um, And so the men trying to, like, renegotiate the the nuclear deal and then the women in Iran holding the Iranian government's feet to the fire. Which one's more successful? I mean, it's a battle of the sexes, isn't it?
0: Mm. Stay tuned. I'm
2: grabbing my popcorn.
0: Yep yeah, I you know, and this is why you know, having podcasts like yours, this is part of why I started the show is so that we can bring attention to these issues and not just cover the same stuff over and over and over and over again um, and bring attention to global news and global women because that it, it we're all connected with one another. I mean, it's also interesting seeing what's happening in Saudi Arabia in terms of reforms and women and you know women women demanding more rights there. I think this is within the region, and F- who knows what's going to happen in Afghanistan, but that's obviously, that can't go on forever.
2: Well, that and that's the thing. I mean, like or? we're am talking
0: about these brave women of
2: Afghanistan who they have been through absolute hell. I mean, the world really turned their back on them. My first episode of Women Building Peace is on Afghanistan, and I connected Hillary Clinton with a young woman at the time. She was hiding in a safe house from the Taliban and connected with yeah. two of them. Um and it was a really emotional conversation. And, you know, a year later, some of these girls are still stuck there and can't have an education and are under threat because their family members work for the American government, etc. cetera. But they're going out in the streets in solidarity of the Iranian women next door. I mean, it's amazing. that's
0: bravery. Yeah. Serious bravery. You know? Yeah. That's courage. It's courage. Well, yeah. thank you, Suzanne. I, You know, this has been a such a rich conversation. And also, you know, please listen to her podcast, Women Building Peace. I've listened to a few episodes. It's terrific. And thank continue to, to share this story. And please tune into her documentary. So I want to thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Good night, Suzanne. Bye. So that was Suzanne Kianpour. I apologize, pronounce it Suzanne for a second. It's Suzanne Kianpour, who is the presenter of the BBC documentary, Out of the Shadows, which is about Iran and Israel and peace in the Middle East giving us some perspective on what's going on in Iran and the protests. And I think some of the main takeaways that I really had is the incredible bravery of women. The fact that men are supporting them and how critical that is to fomenting a revolution is it's not just one gender, that men are protecting women. They're coming to their sides, they're filming, they're helping, they're you know spreading the news. The, the person who, uh, Shervin, who wrote this beautiful song, which I encourage you to, to watch and look at the translation because it's really emotional, is a man. And so having both genders, I think, is really important. And I also heard a call to action of the men of the United States to stand up and be activists on behalf of Roe v. Wade, because this isn't just about women and having rights to their body. It's about families having the choice of whether to have a child or not and whether or not you should be able to decide that as a family unit or whether the government should make that decision. So... You call to arms to the men as we'll hear that you know reproductive rights is under threat. And I think what also sticks out to me is we may not be called a theocracy, but the supreme court's most recent decisions are so religious in nature, it would be impossible not to call us a religious country. Not a theocracy, we are a democracy, but the Supreme Court's decisions are are so based upon religion, it's really impossible to say otherwise. And we are. Like she said, religious as Iran is religious. and I know I'll get blowback for that, but I don't really care. So the last thing I want to do is I want to show you a very cool video, which is uh, we did four shows on Ukraine here. And I think something that also sticks out to me is, uh, you know, and a shout out to my my student from the Women's Leadership Challenge, Olga. Um for being a just all around amazing women, that Ukrainian women are really tough. And so are Persian women. And so I love this video, which shows Ukrainian women literally in the trenches singing this anti-fascist Italian song. And then you're going to see the same song sung by Iranian women showing the transnational nature of women's movement. So let's take a look at that.
1: Аліни і барактари за Україну б'ють русню, а наші люди, а українці проти Русні об'єднали вже цілий світ. І скоро зовсім Русні не буде, а буде мир на всій землі. І скоро зовсім Русні не буде. آبودم ایرنا از سی زمین خوکی این گندم تو خیابونه
3: خوشی خشم من و توش نه ی
1: حق ما کم نی
0: So that was ukrainian women singing the same song as the persian women which is really i just find really amazing so i want to thank our sponsors again stream inspectors the leaders in live stream production i want to encourage you to check out socap which is a conference that convenes the largest and most diverse impact investing community in the world For more than 15 years, SOCAP has been the flagship event and leading convener in the impact economy, gathering more than 100,000 people since our first event. So, you're interested in impact investing and social change. That conference is October 17th for four days in San Francisco in person. Thank goodness I will be there. And also, the Women's Leadership Challenge. So, what is the Women's Leadership Challenge? It is a program that helps women to step into their power and become change makers like Suzanne. I loved when she said, I wouldn't have worn the hijab either. That speaks to values being more important than fear. And this program is really about understanding who you are as a woman, as a leader, your values, your purpose in this life, and then how do you use that to create your next steps in life and also to create social and political change on the issues you care about. So here's a short video about the Women's Leadership Challenge.
3: I took the Women's Leadership Challenge in early 2021. Samantha told me before I started that this could possibly change my life. And you know what? (laughs) I
0: think it might have done. Gave me the very breakthrough I needed. Fulfilled me in so many ways. Find all my senses through this class. Welcomed me just as I was. I believe that we need more women leaders in the world, women leaders who lead in innovative, creative, courageous ways that are true to who they are, that aren't a manufactured version of what a man would do at the top. So we're gonna do things like finding your purpose, but we're also gonna do things like looking at how do you create institutional change? Your cohort will become your sisters that will support you, elevate, lift you up. I highly recommend that any woman who's looking for a pivot, looking for a boost, feeling imposter syndrome, definitely recommend the Women's Leadership Challenge. It's really been a wonderful,
2: life-changing, empowering experience, and I hope that you will join it as well.
0: So you may recognize the woman in that video. Yes, that is me. That is my other, my my day job, if you could call it. But I absolutely love teaching, empowering, helping, connecting women across borders to really drive social change and be the leaders that they're meant to be. The fall virtual cohort is now full and has a wait list. The, uh, so I'm accepting applications for the spring cohort, which is already almost half full. I only run four of these cohorts a year. And then there's one spot left for the Washington, D.C. cohort, which is coming up and starting in November in person. So if you're interested, check out www.womensleadershipchallenge.com. Or to get on my mailing list, you can text the word empower, E-M-P-O-W-E-R, to 66866. You'll also get an access there to a free download, which is your six step guide to unbeatable confidence. So if you wanna be a woman leader like Suzanne, please check out the Women's Leadership Challenge and Stream Inspectors, your leaders in live stream production, as well as SOCAP. And listen to Suzanne, we really do need to raise awareness about this. Foreign policy is so masculinized and what these women are doing is a watershed moment in history. So please share this episode. If you think this issue is important, share it with your friends, share it with your colleagues, share it with men, share it with people so that we can raise awareness of this because the traditional Western media isn't really covering this enough. You can find us on YouTube, on Facebook, and also tomorrow the episode will be on Apple and Spotify podcast. If you're listening on any of these platforms, please subscribe, like, and rate us. That really helps us to be able to support production of this show. If you really care and think this what we're doing is important, we also encourage you to become a monthly subscriber on Patreon for as little as $3 a month. That's right, for $3 a month, which is legitimately less than the price of a Starbucks, you can support the voices of women in foreign policy. Like Suzanne was saying, only 25% of stories focus on women. So be the change you want to see in the world. Support us on Patreon. It's incredibly important to helping support our production costs and this amazing production team we have. I think that's it for tonight. Thank you so much for tuning in, Samantha Politics, and we'll see you on the next show. Good night, everybody.